2007. It was a Friday night. I was wearing my full doorman getup. This is Melrose Hotel, this happening little boutique hotel in Dallas, Texas. I mean, the place where The Bachelor, some of The Bachelor episodes were filmed. I mean, that kind of place. The place to, to see and be seen. The place where Dallasites would come in their super outfits with their super cars and buy overpriced drinks to impress one another, okay? That's where I worked for six years. Friday night, 2007, I'm sitting there working. It's 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, something like that. And, and suddenly, a car pulls up. It looked actually just like this one. Now that, my friends, if you know, is a a 7 Series BMW. If you get it fully loaded, we're talking in the, you know, 125 range for for what it would cost to buy one of those. And this one was fully loaded, pulled up. And, you know, for me, like I had already seen 10 of those that night. Not, Not a big deal. It was right between the Maseratis and Ferraris and things like that. But what made this one special is who was driving. It was my friend Mariana. Now, I hadn't seen Mariana in months. We had actually worked together for a while, uh, a year before, and became friends. And during that time, she told me, hey, Paul, I got a job. I'm now working in finance, and I am going to make ridiculous buckets of money. I'm going to make so much money that I don't know what to do with it. And here's what I'm going to do. She said, when I make enough money, I'm going to pay cash for a BMW 740i, and I'm going to come back here. And I'm going to try and hire you to work with me. And I looked at her and I was like, yeah, right. You know, people talk like that all the time. Sure, you're a super job where you're going to make so much money. But there she was. And she came in that night, not just to drink an overpriced drink, but to talk to me about working with her. And the next, uh, you know, I didn't get home until probably 2 o'clock in the morning. That's how my shifts worked. I always worked Friday and Saturdays because those were the nights to, to make money. And... Uh, And the next morning, I look at Jenny, and I say, you know what? The weirdest thing happened last night. Jenny's eyes are wide, like she hears the story, and we're like, what do you you think this means? I mean, do you think she's serious about this? And the next week, she came up again and and talked to me and and gave me a bunch of materials to look over, and she she was serious about this. She wanted me to consider working with her, and she started going through some of the details that at this time, she was making a little over $20,000 a month. A quarter million dollars a year. Now, I'm not a greedy man. Never really have been. But let me, let me tell you where I was at at the time. At the time, I was working two jobs. Driving a 1990 Chevy Cavalier station wagon. Living in a back house. 480 square foot back house. Shopping at like Old Navy for the really nice stuff. And Walmart. I, I lived on ramen noodles for entire months at a time. I mean, this, is, this, this sounded like an unfathomable amount of money. Like an opportunity. This was an opportunity to live a life that I never dreamed of, to go places I'd never been, to offer something, provide for my family in a way that I never dreamed was possible. And she was serious. Later that week, we scheduled an appointment, and she actually took me and Jenny out to dinner. It's a top 10 steakhouse in Dallas, Chamberlain's. Which is to say, it's a top 10 steakhouse in the world. And we sat there at this beautiful table, eating my perfectly cooked filet and garlic mashed potatoes and asparagus, lightly grilled. And she painted this vivid picture of what it would be like to come work with her. Like the amount of money I would make and what I could do with that. 
And she, she knew me. She, we had worked together. She knew that it wasn't just the Greek. So she started talking not just about the things I could do and the opportunities it afforded for my family, but the ways it could make a difference in ministry. Do you know what you can do with, with that kind of money in ministry? If you make a quarter million dollars a year, do you know what you can give to? You do the missions you can support. You know what you can do for the local church? And we have this excellent dinner and then go home and I knew, Jenny and I both knew, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like this does not come up again. Like this was my opportunity to give my family things and opportunities I never had. This was my opportunity to support the church, to support missions in a way that I never thought was possible. This was my opportunity to drive a BMW. Or I could stick it out in ministry. You know, I'd worked five years for a degree. I could use it. I could take an entry-level job at the church I was working at and get paid about $40,000 a year. I fought with God about this decision. I mean, I did. I, I talked to the pastor of the church I was at, at the time. I remember sitting there and just talking through the opportunities. And I kept arguing my, with myself. You know, if I went out and got some business experience, then I might be better at ministry. I might. I mean, I might go out and then, then I could understand where people were coming from. I would understand the business world. Then I could do it. You know, I could do this for a few years and then I could be self-funded. I wouldn't even have to take a salary from a church if I made enough money. You know, if I did this, then just imagine what I could do for God. And, and the hardest part about this was that it was not a right or wrong question. This wasn't sin. There's no sin involved here. Like, I knew and I know many men and women who make ridiculous amounts of money and do it in a way that honors God. I fully believe that wherever you're called, whether it's in a pulpit or in a factory or in a house or in an office place, that you can be called by God, used by God, use your job, your ministry, your income to honor God. So for me, there wasn't a question of, of could I do this? Because many people do it and they do it greatly to the glory of God. But in the end, the question I had to answer was, is this something that God is leading me to do? Or is this a distraction from what God has clearly led me to do? Do I really believe that this is something that I can do wholeheartedly for the Lord? Or am I just trying to do this for myself? Am I asking God to bless my vision of success? Or am I willing to take his vision for my success? Not many of you are going to be put in a situation where you're asked, you know, would you give up ministry for a quarter million dollars a year? But all of us face this type of question all the time. With every career choice and every purchase and every neighborhood decision and everything we put in our schedule, we're choosing something. We're saying something about how we define success We're making a decision. Do I believe that this is something I can do wholeheartedly for the Lord? Or am I doing this for myself? Will I accept asking God to bless my vision of success? Or am I going to accept his vision for my success? Uh, There is a foul, so I'm not recommending this, a a foul but profound movie called Collateral. Came out a while ago. Jamie Foxx. 
Tom Cruise. Jamie Foxx is a cab driver. He does a really good job in the cab driver role. And he's a, he's a cab driver, and this businessman comes, hops in his cab, and it's Tom Cruise, who uh, he wants to hire him for the night. And he's like, oh, this is a great deal. I'll take him. And, and along the way, he finds out that his business is assassination, which is unfortunate, but it leads to all kinds of interesting conversations about life and about the purpose of life. And in that, all this to say, in that, over and over again, he keeps pulling out a postcard. And finally, they have a conversation about this, and we find out that this cab driver, like, this postcard is his vision in life. His, his goal in life, his vision of success is that he pulls out this postcard, and he says, this is it. I'm going to go to this tropical island, and there I'm going to start a limo service. And so the thing that keeps him motivated, the thing that drives him every day, his vision of success is this postcard. And I, I saw that, and I think this is something that consciously or subconsciously all of us have. All of us have a postcard that we like to pull out in our fantasies and our dreams and our decisions we make. All of us have something we're aiming for. All of us, the, every choice we make at home, at work, online, at, at the store, at church. We're all seeking something. We're, we're seeking a life destination. And that reveals what we really care about. That reveals our definition of success. If you've been here the last two weeks, you know... That the Thessalonian church is Paul's postcard. That little church right there is Paul's vision of what a church should look like. If you, if, you, if you go through that, Paul's picture of success is this church that in a mere five weeks of just very little training, with just a handful of people, no resources, fierce opposition, something amazing starts to happen. The gospel starts to spread through this little group of people. It spreads like a wildfire. It spreads like a flu in a preschool. It, it spreads everywhere. That, but by verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, he says this. He says, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now what happened in that church, in that New Testament era church, was unique. The Apostle Paul calls it, in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, he calls it a model it's something that he wishes he could replicate in every church. It's his postcard church. Something that we should all strive to. But here's the thing. When we come to chapter 2, we're going to find something curious. We're going to find that in the midst of a great movement of God, one of the most exciting missionary endeavors in the history of the world, there were Christians in Thessalonica who could not see what Paul saw. They do not see a success. They see a failure. Look at verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. There would be no reason to write this except that some of the brothers and sisters, some of the Christians in the Thessalonican church, thought that it was. So the Apostle Paul sends Timothy to come check on the church, and he hears this report, and from his perspective, everything is exactly the way it should be. But some of the people of the church think it was an utter failure. Look at verse 3 there. They question Paul's motives. For the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Then in verse 5 and 6, Paul has to defend his ministry. We never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. 
We were not looking for the praise of men. Like, do you see it? Do you see what's happening here? That these men and women have a front row seat and one of the greatest movements of God ever, one of the greatest missionary endeavors in the history of the world, and they view it as a failure. They cannot see it because they're not looking at the same postcard. They held a different picture of success. In chapter 2 here, we're going to see the Apostle Paul is going to challenge them and us that if we do not hold a right picture of success, if we do not let Jesus define our vision of success, we might miss out on the greatest things in life. We might miss out on the movement of God right before our eyes, and we might miss out on the kingdom of God. So here's the context. Let's, let's set this out. Paul and Silas, they come into town, right? They're there five weeks. They preach the gospel, and then they incite a mob. In the middle of the night, they have to run away. And now here's, here's Christians who at most could be five weeks old in their faith, and he pushes them out and says, Go, share your faith to that city that hates you. Okay, I, w- I, want you to, I want you to appreciate what's going on here. This is like me taking my four-year-old son to c- city center filling and being like, go. I hope it goes well for you. Like, let's be clear. It, it won't go well. And, and in one important sense, it didn't go well. Acts chapter 17 describes the church in this way. Who became Christians? Well, it was a few Jews. For a Jew who becomes a Christian, what happens to you? You get kicked out of the synagogue. Your family says you're dead to them. Quite a few Greeks. What happens to the Greeks? Well, they go out there and suddenly all of their friends view them as traitors, as denying their very way of life. And not a few prominent women. Let me tell you what happens to those prominent women. These are women who lived off the income, the luxuries of Rome, of Italy, of of Caesar. So what happens when you deny Caesar, when you deny Rome, when you deny that kingdom, and you say you serve a different king? I'll tell you what happens. All the Italian luxuries. Goodbye. Dolce and Gabbana. Prada. Hello, Walmart. If our picture of success means a comfortable lifestyle and being well-liked, if we measure success in things like career advancement, personal luxuries, vacations, Facebook friends, LinkedIn contacts, nights out on the town, then by that measure, Paul's missionary work is a total failure. Here we have a church that is poor, Suffering, abandoned, immature, weak. And the Apostle Paul looks at them and says, Your success. God is working in you. This is God's definition of success. The gospel is advancing through you. God is working in you. Your lives are being changed. But understandably... Some of the Christians there can't see it. So two points I want to look at as we go through just the first seven, eight verses of this text today. Two points. And the first one is this. If we want to see real success, lasting success, God's vision of success, 
We must seek Christ more than we seek our own comfort. Look at the text. The Apostle Paul is going to set the standard here. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. And let me tell you why. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in in spite of strong opposition. He says, it's true. We suffered. We were abused. We were beaten. We lost everything. That's not a failure. Our success is not dependent on how comfortable the trip was. Do you want to see what the success is here? It's that they follow God when it was hard. That's the success. That they took the risk to tell them about Jesus when it cost them greatly. That's success. Verse 5. You know that we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Do you hear what he's saying here? He says, we were not driven by greed. That our success has nothing to do with money or the comforts that it could buy. You can't buy our success. Verse 6. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. We could have been a burden to you. What he's going to say here is this. As as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as someone preaching the gospel, he had a God-given right to charge a living wage for what he did. Like, he's, he's giving them the eternal message of God. The least they could do is pay for his lodging. But he didn't take the money. Verse 7 says this. We were um, gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. Here's Paul's example. Imagine the most hard-working person you can imagine. Someone who's constantly bothered by immature people. Someone who works slaves for a living and never gets paid. It's a mother. We loved you like that. Like your own mother. It wasn't for money. It wasn't to be comfortable. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. You know what he's saying? He says during the day he would get there and he would work a day job all day. And then at night he would do ministry for free. He did this. He worked a double shift every day while he was there. Why? Because it wasn't about what he could take from them. It was about what he was giving to them. The gospel. So I want you to see this. In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul actually sits down and describes his condition during this missionary journey, this is what he says. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. And when we're cursed, we blessed. And when we're persecuted, we endure it. And when we're slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Why, Paul? Like, there's no money in this. There's no 401k. There's no beach house. There's no vacations. Why would the Apostle Paul be willing to give so much, demand so little, and suffer so much? And the answer is simple. Because he's not pursuing his own comfort. He's pursuing Jesus Christ. He is following Jesus. The same Jesus who came 
not for himself, but to seek and save the lost. The same Jesus who had power over everything, but never once, searched the Gospels, never once in his life does he use his power for his own benefit. Never once. The same Jesus who owned everything in the universe and yet lived in poverty. The same Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The same Jesus who made himself nothing and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. The same Jesus who said, now, as the Father sends me, in the same way that the Father sent me in poverty and brokenness and selflessness and sacrifice, now I send you. You see, when we make comfort the measure of our success, if our picture of success is filled with vacations and cars and home and freedom to do whatever I want, then our picture of success looks nothing like Jesus. If we make comfort the measure of our success, I'm not even sure from the way I read Scripture that it's possible to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 9 Jesus is starting on the road from up north. He's heading south to Jerusalem where he is going to suffer, be betrayed, mocked, abandoned, all that, and then die on a cross. And he's heading that way. And along the way, along the path, Luke chapter 9, some people come and say, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, it says this way. As they're walking along the road, a man came up to him and said, I will follow you wherever you go. What does Jesus say to him? Foxes have holes and birds, have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I am homeless. Are you willing to take that on? To another man, he says, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another man said, I will follow you, Lord, But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That Jesus is literally heading to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, following Jesus along the road literally means you are following him to death, to suffering, to crucifixion, and then resurrection. And the Apostle Paul is going to be clear that in the same way that they literally had to follow him on the road to his death, that if we want to follow Jesus Christ, the call is the same. Come and die. Die to yourself. Come tear up this picture of success that you have. Like throw it away. You have to set aside your comfort and your desires to find his success, his comfort, his desires, his victory on the cross. What makes this so painfully difficult is that these aren't bad things. This looks like a really nice place. In fact, last I checked, um, Good meals, good homes, good vacations. I've actually got all of those and done all of those recently. Nice cars. I can stand an upgrade, but... Like a a nice place to worship in. A nice lifestyle. Being comfortable is wonderful. These are gifts from God. 
There's nothing wrong with making money, having a nice home, living in a nice neighborhood, eating a good meal. But if we do not seek Christ more than we seek our own comfort, we will be blind to the greatest things in the universe. We could miss the kingdom of God. Number two, if we want to see real success, lasting success, God's picture of success, we must care more about God's approval than the approval of others. Let's look at verse 3 here again. Verse 3 says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. We, We are not trying to trick you. The people here, they're actually, they're so hurt. They've lost so much that when they came, they believed the gospel. And and he says, God's going to give you life and life abundantly. And they believed it. And then what happened? Paul leaves and their life just falls to pieces. And so they feel misled. They feel hurt. You you look at the language here. He says, it didn't spring from error. We weren't making up lies. Impure motives. The word impure here is literally the word unclean. But it has Sexual overtones. Like, it's the picture of a dirty old man saying, come get my car, I want to give you a piece of candy. He says, I'm not a dirty old man trying to give you a piece of candy. I'm not trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God and trusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please you, though. But God, who tests our hearts, and there it is. The Apostle Paul is going to say, it's not just comfort, it's also the approval of others. That when we come to it, standing before the God of the universe and knowing that He approves of you, well, that's success. Verse 5, you know that we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for for praise from men, nor not from you or anyone else. So in ancient Thessalonica, there were two major ways to become the social elite. The first way was flattery. This was a system of, we talked about this last week, called patronage. That the city itself, its economic structure was buoyed up by Rome. That it's your relationship with Roman officials, with Caesar, with his household, that that's how you get your education. That's how you get your jobs. That's how you get extra finances. That's how you get your job bonuses and your vacations. That's how you get everything from Rome. So if you are really good at flattering Roman citizens, that's how you became a social elite. That's how you made your living. The other thing is, is uh, we are not looking for praise from men. The, the, the other way to make it really big in Thessalonica was to become a speaker, an orator, rhetorician, sophist. Think motivational speakers. Think the larger-than-life personalities. They would come to town, and, and the ancient philosophers describe it this way, that all the, all the young men would drop everything. They would run out, and they would scream and chant, Bravo, marvelous. It's like they were the rock stars of the day. It was like a, a One Direction concert when they showed up. It was crazy. And these guys, they would do anything, whatever it took, to get people to pay attention, to get their praise. In today's context, it would be like... Oh, I don't know, swinging naked on a wrecking ball. It'd be like drag racing your Lamborghini. It'd be like singing, I live for the applause, applause, applause. Yeah, they were just like today's rock stars. And what's the Apostle Paul say? He says, "Uh, uh, we didn't use flattery, and I don't speak like one of those guys. I am no rock star. 
I'm not even trying to be. In fact, he says, I didn't seek your approval at all. I didn't come at enormous personal cost to suffer greatly and risk my very life so that you would like me. I did not come for that reason. I did it because Jesus came for me. He paid an enormous personal cost. He suffered greatly and he gave his life for me. And because of that, that's why I'm doing this for you. Do you understand? His motivation didn't come from their approval. It came from God's approval. If you make the approval of others the measure of your success, Jesus is going to ask us, how can you possibly follow him? John chapter 5, verse 44. I think I might have this. Jesus, speaking to some men who will never believe in him, Ask them this question. How can you believe if you accept the praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from God only? Implied answer? You, you can't. Like, if you, if you know who God is, if you know his gospel, if you know what Jesus Christ did for you and suffered for you and gave up for you, and you don't then want to serve him, you couldn't possibly believe. If you know who God is and you do not want his approval, then you do not know who God is. If we want real success, lasting success, God's picture of success, we must care more about God's approval than the approval of others. The other day I was on Facebook and um, saw this very, very cheesy picture. If you want to be loved, be lovable. And the worst part about it is that it was liked by like a million preteen girls. <laughs> I'm just thinking, oh. Now, let me tell you what I find so deeply disturbing about this. <laughs> Besides the coloring and the fact that I believe that's a man's hands. Because this speaks deeply to a need that's not only felt in preteen girls, but in all of us. And let me tell you what, if our preteens believe that it's going to have some implications for us. If they take their desire to be loved and they go out there thinking, I have to make myself lovable so that other people will love me, they will see me, they will appreciate me. Do you know what our daughters are going to do to win the love of other people. Do you know what our young men are going to do to win the approval of other people? Do you know, parents, what some of you are going to do to win the approval of your children? You cannot love someone like that. That's manipulation. That's perversion. That is conditional love. See, the gospel, it takes that and it throws it away and it puts this up and said, while I was unlovely, Christ loved me. Listen to this. This is Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Like, like we can't earn God's approval. Do you hear that? You can't. You don't ever receive it. And my value then is not based on whether I make myself lovely or not. You know what makes me lovely? God loves me. 
And because he loves me, I am changed by his love. And if there's anything lovely in me, it's because God loved me first. My value and your value, young ladies in particular, I'm speaking to you, your value is not based on your performance or your looks. Young men, it is not based on your skill or your ability to earn money. It is not based on where you live or what you drive. I am loved and you are loved by the one who gives meaning to all things while you were yet sinners. He knows your sin and he loves you anyways. And that's what matters. Therefore, you and I can live and die for him. Because he's what matters. We must care more about God's approval than the approval of others. And we must seek Christ more than we seek our own comfort. If we ever hope to be Christians, if we ever hope to become like Christ. If you're sitting there right now thinking, I think I do seek comfort more than I seek Christ. Or I know myself, I still seek the approval of others more than I ever think about the approval of God. You're thinking, what am I supposed to do about this? Uh, I just want to offer a few suggestions. One, I, I, I honestly don't know. This is a heart issue. And so many of you, you need to wrestle with this deeply. I, I think all of us do. Let me just make a few suggestions, and that's all they are. One is, I just want to say, don't leave here and then passively accept the world's picture that is constantly put in front of our face of success. Like, don't accept it. You fight for a vision of God's success. And here's the first thing that we need to do. Uh, Psalm 42, Jenny and I were talking about this last night. This is great. You read the Psalms. What do they do? He says, Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your, put your hope in God. He fights with himself, and that's, it's an example for us to follow. So when you find yourself longing for the comforts of this world, longing for other people's approval, then you speak against it. And that's why he's given us his word, that we fight it with truth. And just, if you just examine it just for a second, if you take a serious look at comfort and approval, do you really think that those things that make us comfortable in any way mean anything in eternity? Do you understand that job and that vacation and that house? It's all going to burn up. It's all going to end up in a trash heap. If you need encouragement in this, go back and read Ecclesiastes again. It will just make you realize all of that is vanity, vanity, a chasing after the wind. Do you really want to put your value in how someone else views you? Do you really? Just take a look at coaches, politicians, preachers. A coach is only as good in the public view as his last game. A politician, his last bill or last work. And a preacher, his last sermon. It's true. That's the way America works. And that is why, friends, I do not preach for you. I preach for God. And that is why you should not live to please me. You should live to please God. 
So we take that apart. We take apart the world's view. And then we gaze at God's view of success. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That when you see him, you realize that he is better than all the comfort we could have in this life. That we fix our eyes on his kingdom. When we remind ourselves of what Paul says in Ephesians, the riches of his glorious grace that he's poured on us. When we were reminded of what he did for us and how much he loves us, our heart is changed and our values change and our definition, our picture of success changes. The second thing and last is that it's not enough just to deal with this in a mental realm, though you should. That's where the battle begins. But you actually need to do something. And this is where it gets really awkward because we don't like to do anything. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, his view of success, remember the things that he said, follow God when it's not easy. That's success. Take the risk to tell someone about Jesus. That's success. Until you take a risk, until you pay the cost, until you decide that I'll follow Jesus even if it means to the cross. Until you turn down a quarter million dollars a year, you can't possibly start to enjoy the riches of his glorious grace. What true success is, the way God measures success, that you can revel in what God's really doing. You can see, your eyes can be open to see what the Apostle Paul sees. This is not a church that is poor and hurt and broken and abandoned. This is a mighty work of God that God is using to transform the nations. You can see what God sees and what we will all see face to face in eternity. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we live in a world that is bombarding us with its definition of success, its vision of what will make us happy and what will give us value. And Lord, it is full of deceit and lies and twisted and half-truths. And I know that we live in a world in here and out there where we are, our hearts are constantly being taken captive by this, this lie that if we only had this, if we only did this, then we would be someone, then we would be happy. That if I only had their approval, that if I only had that position, if I only had that thing. God, I pray that you would set our hearts on Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That we would be a church that seeks first the kingdom of God. That we would find joy in it. That you would be our great reward as you promised Abraham. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.